There is not a model of nation building. We do not build other nations. Uh, the citizens of a country build themselves. It is the week of March 2nd, and welcome to episode 14 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, a senior fellow at the National Security Institute and a former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And today we'll be doing a deep dive with one of my favorite people, George Ingram, senior fellow in the Global Economy and Development Division at the Brookings Institution and formerly the longtime co-chair of the Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network. George had to rotate off a few months ago. He's been working on international economics and development issues for almost 50 years. He previously worked on the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, where I first met him, as Vice President of Citizens Democracy Corps. He was Principal Deputy Assistant Administrator of USAID, and he was also the Interim President and CEO of AED. So George has been uh, experienced in the executive branch, the legislative branch, in business, in uh, the academic community. He's done it all. George, welcome to the podcast. Les, I appreciate you inviting me, and I appreciate your focusing on the issue of fragility today, because I think it's one of the key issues in development that we've got to figure out. Totally agree. So let's uh, let's dive into the issue. Uh, as I was reading through the the report you're associated with, uh, something really struck me uh, about midway through was that in basically in Iraq and Afghanistan and some of these other places, these other fragile states where we've been involved militarily in the last 20 years, we've in, in those places, we've spent between three and six trillion dollars solving problems that have emerged in fragile states. It's an enormously high price uh, economically. We've paid, of course, a much higher price in human lives. Uh, those fighting men and women who've made sacrifices in those places for our country uh, fighting extremists in Africa and in the Middle East over the last couple of decades. It's, it's an amazing price tag that we have paid. So this covers Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, Niger, other countries. These are fragile states with deep and abiding governance issues. So that's the issue we're grappling with. What can be done in a preventive sense about violent extremism, George? Well, Les, the, the key word uh, that you use there is preventive. Um, violent extremism is much easier to avoid before it takes hold than to deal with once it's prevalent in a community or a country. Policymakers are coming to understand that, but they aren't yet figuring out what the action is that's required. To look at examples in our professional lifetime, what if the U.S. had stayed engaged in Afghanistan after the Russians had exited and helped rebuild the country? Would the Taliban have taken hold? The same goes for Central America. The U.S. poured hundreds of millions of dollars into the region in the 1980s, helping governments fight guerrilla forces and inducing governments to be more inclusive and respectful of human rights. Then we got distracted by events elsewhere in the world and ratcheted down our support. What if we'd stayed engaged in the region and supportive of the democratic and reformist forces for another 10 or 20 years? If so, I would argue there's a good chance it would be a different place today, not a land from which citizens are fleeing for lack of safety and economic opportunity, and we would not be wasting billions building an ineffective wall that signals to our closest friends that we don't care about them. 
would we be better off having spent a few billion dollars the last several decades helping those countries develop in a more democratic fashion and able to serve the needs of the country or in an ineffective iron wall of China? All right, let's, uh, let's pull out your example of Afghanistan a little bit. There was a big series in the Post uh, a couple months ago, maybe six weeks ago, six or seven stories uh, going over the record of US, the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan since 9-11. Long pieces, thoughtful, and they'd found some – Washington Post had access to some records from one of the inspector generals uh, that – illuminated a lot of the issues. And I think uh, it certainly stirred up a lot of controversy here in Washington. I think the criticism of the stories was that it neglected to focus on the essential issue, was what, which was that the U.S. had to go in Afghanistan because of 9-11. And our goal there was to eliminate Afghanistan as a threat to the United States, which was largely accomplished. We've seen no more terrorist threats against the United States uh, since that time. But they one of the things that, that I thought was fascinating about the series was it documented a number of cases where we spent a lot of money trying to develop the Afghanistan economy, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, seemingly without a, a context or a coherent strategy for a goal that's attainable on the other end. Is there a model for nation building that can be successful on the ground and that is affordable for us? There is not a model of nation building. We do not build other nations. Uh, The citizens of a country build themselves. Your example of Afghanistan, we were successful initially in laying the foundation for nation building and providing security. It was then up to the Afghan people to build the nation. And the core there is trust is the social compact between the people and the government. And we can be supportive of that effort. We can't do it. What we can do is help governments and and institutions throughout the country be more responsive to the needs and wants of citizens. What that takes is listening to the citizens as to what their needs are what their grievances are, what their complaints are, and then helping institutions, public and private, um, respond to those needs. Uh, And those needs frequently are beyond safety, are food, education, water, access to markets, economic opportunities. And you and I can sit here and identify what the needs might be, but we can't identify the – we can't speak for the Afghan people. We have to listen to them and respond to their what they tell us they need. So what's the test for a place where we might be engaged in a project like that? Is it, is it anywhere in the globe? Could it be in you know, some forgotten island in the Indonesian archipelago? Could it be somewhere in deep sub-Saharan Africa where we don't necessarily have a national security interest? Or is this the Middle East, North Africa, places where we, the United States, have traditionally been involved militarily and have national security concerns? Is there, is there a test for the kind of places we would pursue a policy like this? I think the tests are countries that the U.S. has a direct interest in, and there are lots of those around the world, um, and that countries that play a regional role where we care about the stability and the prosperity of the region. Show me a region we don't have an interest in. 
And so literally it's almost any country in the world because no matter how small the country is, Yemen, um, if violence and civil war take over in that country, it can affect all of the neighboring countries in the region. But I did hear you say there's, there, does, there does need to be a U.S. national security interest at some point in the process. Absolutely. So I'm, think, I'm thinking, George, to some of the conversations you and I had in, at the Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network and other places about instrumentalization of aid and about the rationale for – the overall rationale for the foreign assistance budget, the uh, as we call it, the Function 150 account, which is the State Department and foreign assistance uh, spending of the U.S. government – a lot of the stuff that we do has a humanitarian purpose. Some of it has more crass relationship to our guys with boots on the ground. I don't mean crass in a bad way necessarily, but we're trying to make things safer for our guys who are in harm's way. Could aid to fragile states in the way we've been talking about it be, in a way, the instrumentalization of foreign assistance? Let's say that the, the overall objective is instrumental. The overall objective of aid is to advance... American security and interest. But those interests are threefold. They're protecting America, national security. They're our humanitarian values. Um, and they're advancing economic uh, prosperity. And when you think about the humanitarian values, there may be a country in the world that has no direct national security impact on America or even any economic impact. But the humanitarian situation there is so awful, or the U.S. has longstanding cultural ties to that country. Um, think of all the Polish Americans in this country. Think of all the people from Liberia in this country, that even though there's not an overriding security issue, there's this strong humanitarian cultural issue that we need to be responsive. Great answer. And so I, I'm reminded of uh, something I neglected from your bio, which is that you're uh, the founder and longtime chair of the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, one of my favorite organizations. Uh, and they've uh, done a great job over the years of exactly that, talking about the importance of national security, business interests, and humanitarian interests in developing the, the rationale for the U.S. foreign assistance budget. So that, right. that resonates. What we don't want to do is instrumentalize the way you provide humanitarian and economic assistance. You want to make sure that we're providing that assistance in the interest of the population we're trying to help, not in the interest of some American company or some American NGO located in a congressional district. All right, let's tie it back to um, to fragile states. What is in in as as you've done work on this issue over the last couple of years, and maybe even earlier than that? What is uh, a lot of times in Washington, if you're talking about foreign assistance issues or national security, you'll hear people mention fragile states as a, as a thing of concern. What is, what, is the, what is a more precise definition of a fragile state? How do we know one when we see one? Uh, you know one because the government isn't meeting the needs of the people. Um, and basically, as I said earlier, that flows from a breakdown in trust between the people and their governing institutions, not just the government, but major public and private community institutions in a country. There's just a lack of trust. And you know that when you see a government that can't provide for the safety of its people, can't defend its territory, 
cannot meet basic needs of its citizens of food, water, shelter, uh, education, freedom of expression and religion. So what are what are examples of foreign assistance programs uh, that will address that trust issue between a people and their government? How do we as outsiders rebuild that important linkage in a country? Um, We send our development experts into the country, into communities, um, identify local actors who are reform-minded, and work with them to listen to what the grievances of the people are. And we listen over a few weeks, a few months, and find out what their grievances are, what their needs are, and then structure programs around those. So the the Obama administration had a concept in its aid programs called USAID Forward, which was uh, a way to, to ensure that a lot of the money was spent not on necessarily American organizations that were doing this work, but pushing some of it towards local organizations. Right. The, uh, the Obama administration at USAID under Mark Green has the Road to Self-Reliance as a concept, which uh, talks about ending the need for the U.S. to be funding programs in a country and kind of explicitly implies that we're going to be handing over uh, a lot of decision-making and resources to local actors before we and whatever relationship we might have with that country. So is this is this something that's been infused in a lot of the work the U.S. has been doing in foreign assistance area for a while? Uh, a good 20 years. And I go back to the early uh, Bush years and uh, the early 2000s when he created the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which was built on the concept of local ownership. Don't design the programs here. Respond to countries who have designed their own programs and need help. As you said, Obama carried that more specifically to AID and specifically on the ground, work with local institutions that know the local environment and culture. And basically, Mark Green has carried that with sort of slightly different language um, as a key purpose of U.S. foreign assistance, as, as a key instrument for how we carry out the assistance. So. Let's talk about uh, this task force. You are the member of an advisory council to the Congressionally Chartered Task Force on Extremism in Fragile States. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of that effort? Yeah, the origins of that was the Congress. Obviously, the uh, Congress is fair game for ridicule these days, recent years. Um, But this is an instance where they took the bull by the horns and said, we don't know what we're doing in fragile states and wrote into the appropriations bill an initiative to have an independent study by this well-respected U.S. Institute for Peace uh, to bring in experts from development, from diplomacy, from the private sector, and say, okay, let's develop a plan and elements of how we deal with fragile states. So what were the conclusions of the task force report? Uh, the conclusions was that word that you started off early on in this conversation, and that is prevention. Um, the U.S. dollar will be much better spent, more successful, and save lives by dealing with conditions that give rise to extremism rather than letting it take hold. Um, beyond that, the more specific recommendations included there's got to be interagency agreement on a common framework on how we approach these. You have to listen to the locals. 
You have to build your program around local priorities. You have to work with other donors so all the donors are going in the same direction. Um, And particularly, these programs have to be inclusive. They have to include groups that are often left out, Um, minority ethnic groups, women. Um, You've got to deal with the whole range of players in a country. All right, that's a lot. That's a lot to chew on. Let's let's talk about the the U.S. side of that. You said that you need to see a coherent strategy across the various agencies and departments of the U.S. government. One of the things that we seems like a perennial battle, or every four years battle in the policy discussions in Washington, is should we bring USAID closer to the State Department? Either we're going to merge it into the State Department, we're going to make it a a bureau in the State Department. We're going to physically move everyone out of all the aid folks out of the Ronald Reagan building and put them in Foggy Bottom. Uh, or we're going to even separate them even further and make the administrator not report to the secretary and the president, make him just report to the president, put him in the cabinet. There's this kind of almost neuralgic argument we have all the time about where does aid fit into the constellation of departments and agencies, particularly vis-a-vis the State Department. One of the things I've always uh, thought was an opportunity for aid was to be closer to the Defense Department, where you're you see a lot of uh, defense dollars going to programs that are not totally dissimilar from what aid is doing. And if aid can have an, a, a salutary development impact on those dollars, it's good for everyone. Uh, but never seems we never seem to quite seize that as much as we could. So when you say we need to have a a clear strategy across agencies and departments, is that happening now? Does something need to change to make that happen better, or is it can we do it with the structure that we have in place right now? Um, you can do it with the structure that's in place now. I've always believed in the in the business model of large corporations where the headquarters sets out a broad strategy, but you decentralize the implement, implementation to those organizations that have the expertise. So the Department of Defense, the State Department, AID, the NSC, need to be on the same page as to what the goals are in a particular country and what the main instruments are. But then you need to give the various agencies freedom to go out there and do the job that they have the expertise to do. And sometimes that will involve the U.S. and the State Department working together because AID needs the ambassador to go in to see the health minister to make a major point And in other cases, in many cases today, it means AID working with the Defense Department because the Defense Department has the logistics that AID needs in humanitarian situations. They have the guns that unfortunately sometimes are needed in situations like Afghanistan. So I like this idea of the corporate, the corporation as the model. Where does, uh, if we kind of extend your metaphor a little bit, where does, how does Congress play a role in the corporation metaphor for foreign assistance and diplomacy? Um, Congress doesn't play a role in the corporate metaphor because the Congress is the funder. And in the corporate metaphor, the customer is the funder. Um, But what you have in, in government policy is you have multiple decision makers and multiple bosses the Congress is a boss. The White House is a boss. Whoever's heart of your head of your department is a boss. And so you've got to make sure that those bosses are on the same page. 
So have the bosses on the Hill taken the conclusions from the task force report for action? What have, what have they done? They mandated that this report come out. They asked for a strategy. They, they charge individuals, terrific ones, to come up with an answer. What are they doing with that information? Well, it's, it's very rare for the Congress to launch an initiative and tell us and, and say, come back and tell us what we should do, and then they do it. In this case, the Congress did it. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. And the Congress uh, last year enacted the Global Fragility Act. And the principles and the strategies laid out in that act are probably 95% consistent with the recommendations of the task force. So Congress has really stepped up and said, you're right, experts, let's do it your way. So it it would seem that kind of based on our conversation that one of the things Congress would be doing is funding more preventative programs, more things that can address violent extremism before it happens, before we have to send boots on the ground into a country. Is Congress making the decision at the funding level to go ahead and support those kinds of programs? Uh, They're making the decision on a tentative trial basis. Uh, Show to us that this is going to work, and then we'll provide more money. I'm kind of putting words in their mouths, but that's sort of the concept. Where, and where is that going to be? Where, what are they looking at? How much did they fund? Do we, do we think this is going to work? The, um, the original appropriations initiative uh, provided money for a pilot. Uh, the executive branch and USIP have agreed to a pilot in Burkina Faso. Um, it's a $13.5 million pilot, so it's a very modest effort. Um, but it's a pilot that there are going to be a lot of eyes scrutinizing to see how it works. It's been in the news lately that the Trump administration uh, is taking a look at military commitments to sub-Saharan Africa. They're, they may be scaling back uh, AFRICOM. Uh, I think there was initially some erroneous reports that we were pulling out of the continent entirely. Since then, it's been clarified that as uh, just a review of existing commitments, whether we need to be spending the money we're spending. Do you do you think that we're going to be able to, uh, we as as the American government are going to be able to synchronize both the the test in Burkina Faso and the uh, possible reforms coming down the line uh, in Africa? I wish I could answer your question, <laughs> um, but there's been s- in so many areas there's been s- such disparate messages coming from different parts of this administration that you're never sure which are really going to take hold and which are the ones that, that, that really have legs. Well, one of the purposes of this podcast, of course, is to, pro- is to help the administration find coherence across all of the activities it is doing. So, so perhaps we could solve it here today for well, them. Well, and I, I will say this. They are trying to find coherence in the Burkina Faso model. The agencies, state, aid, DOD are working together and they're coming up with a common frame. So hopefully... This will be a model for them to follow elsewhere. How will we know if it works? We will know if it works when we take a look at what this model takes on as its goals and charges. And again, you and I can't set that here in Washington effectively. But we need to look at the at that in six months or nine months, look at what their goals are, and then a year, two years later say, have they achieved those? Have they made progress? And particularly important, have they decided halfway through that goal was not the right goal? That goal's not making a difference. We're going to shift over here. It's the adaptability and the ability, the flex- flexibility from the Congress and the executive branch 
leaders for the people in the field, they're going to make this work. All right, let's talk about, um, I think, a very related issue, which is earmarks and directives from the Hill and, for that matter, you know, directives from the White House regarding foreign assistance. I've seen um, analysis that shows in, at the end of the day, in a foreign assistance appropriations bill, something like 140 percent of the money is programmed for one program or mm-hmm. another. Uh, I think the reality <laughs> – that seems a little high. I think the reality is that while much of the money is programmed, there is some flexibility for USAID and the State Department, depending on who's calling the shots, uh, to, to change uh, foreign assistance programs – to meet needs on the ground and to and to give some flexibility to the people who are actually implementing them, there probably needs to be more flexibility. But I think we need to we need to find a rationale, uh, we in the policy community, that justifies that flexibility. Is this is this enterprise that that we're talking about in Burkina Faso? Could that be the the key to unlocking more flexibility in foreign assistance dollars? Absolutely. If the administration designs this program so that the American experts on the ground have the freedom to design the program jointly with both government leaders and and civil society and private sector and other donors, Um, and that works, that will help build what I talked earlier about trust, trust between people and the government. It applies in the U.S. government too. Absolutely. If 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 that model works, it could build up trust from the Congress and the White House in our experts in the field and giving them more flexibility on how they conduct business. So this the project we're talking about, Burkina Faso, is about $13 million. Let's play this out a little bit. A couple of years, we realized this worked pretty well. We want to make an investment in these activities that uh, is going to make a difference on the ground across the board. How big of a program are we talking about? Is this something for the Sahel and the Middle East and maybe parts of the Indo-Pacific? Should it be informing all of the dollars we spend across the board, uh, economic support funds, development assistance funds? Where's the, what's the next logical place uh, as you, if we bring this to scale to, to see this kind of policy implemented? You sort of pose two questions, and I'll answer both of them. One is – the model that comes out of the Global Fragility Act and the USIP report are elements of how you do good assistance and applies to any type of assistance. As to the magnitude of funding we're talking about, you talked about trillions of dollars that we've spent in Afghanistan and Iraq. We spent a few billion in Central America 40 years ago. And what I would anticipate is multiple tens or a few hundred million dollars in each of key countries over a period of 10 or 15 years. Focus countries, if you will. Focus countries. And I don't know if that's going to be 10 countries or 15 or 20, but the it's going to pale in significance, the funding level, compared to what we've spent in Afghanistan and um, Iraq, and pale in terms of funding compared to what we would end up spending if any of these countries break out in civil war and and disrupt local uh, regional stability. All right, let's talk about a couple of hot topics before we conclude today. One is uh, coronavirus. Of course, uh, this is an epidemic becoming a pandemic. It's exposing uh, and is going to expose weak healthcare systems around the world. China 
being the first example, it's got kind of its own unique challenges, of course. Uh, we're likely to see other and perhaps different kinds of challenges in African countries, in Latin American countries, in North America, across the globe. Our system is really going to be tested, among other things, with the coronavirus. Someone pointed out earlier that develop, if we are able to achieve better development in fragile states, if we're able to go into Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran at some point, and really uh, make a difference on the ground in a real way that reduces the chances of violent extremism, we also have a chance to better improve their healthcare systems and thus have a direct impact on uh, on our own healthcare needs in a in a pandemic type situation is there is that is that going too far or is that a reasonable no that's not going too far at all and it will have a positive impact not just on our health here at home which is a health and a national security issue but on our economic prosperity look what's happened to the stock market looks what ha- has happened to companies in China who've suddenly lost their supply chain so we're talking about an economic social security issue. All right. And let's talk about, while we're at it, uh, great power competition. So the U.S. has been engaged in a war on terror for uh, using that term or others for a couple of decades now since 9-11. It's been one of the primary, perhaps the primary focus of a lot of our uh, defense spending and a lot of our international affairs spending is is the war on terror. We're shifting slowly, but it's happening. It may have started in the Obama administration with the the pivot to Asia. It's certainly happening with the Trump administration and its Indo-Pacific strategy. We're we're starting to refocus our resources on um, on the threat and the challenge and the opportunities. Some would say uh, posed by the rise of China uh, and perhaps also Russia, but mostly China. Um, how do the strategies in the task force report? relate to that kind of that that big shift that is happening now in US policy is there a way we can uh, infuse the principles that that we've been talking about as we shift more towards the Indo-Pacific and think about a rising China um the recommendations and the conclusions of the task force don't deal with the big power challenges um except indirectly from the point of view that if the U.S. can get its policies and programs right in these fragile environments and help stabilize the conditions there, lay the grounds for more democratic, open markets, um, they're going to be less susceptible to that great power challenge. That the U.S. model is going to start looking a lot better than the Chinese exactly. authoritarian closed society model. Yep, exactly. Excellent. Totally agree. George, before we're done, let's let's uh, jump into the political realm here. It's an election year. Uh, President Trump's running for re-election. Democrats are trying to figure out who they're going to run against him. Uh, it, it reminds us that foreign assistance, while this is, I don't think this is totally true, generally speaking, is not a super, super popular program. Certainly a bunch of politicians have uh, campaigned against foreign aid, saying it's giving taxpayer dollars to foreigners and it's a waste of money and it's throwing money down a rat hole and that kind of thing, uh, most of which I think is bunk. But it's certainly out there as a, as a political meme and a theme and something that that crops up. But also we're in a we're in a political transition year here. Uh, regardless of who wins, there's going to be some sort of transition. There'll be new policy initiatives. Maybe they're just tweaks on the current ones or maybe they're radical departures. Uh, next year than from what we've done for the last three years. So how, is, is, this a, is this a problem for us as we debate foreign policy and foreign assistance issues, or is it an opportunity? 
it's an opportunity. And I think if you look at what you referenced, the people who referenced talk about foreign aid is, is, is money down a rat hole, that happened in the 90s. Um, as you and I both know, in the last 20 years, there's been a strong uptake in the Congress, bipartisan, of support for foreign aid. You know, two-thirds of the Congress now is strongly behind what we do in foreign aid. Uh, it's not a campaign issue. It's never been a campaign issue. Um, in fact, if you look at the at the debates in the Democratic Party, maybe 10 percent of the conversation has been about foreign policy. But I think particularly with the coronavirus, it's actually a great opportunity for candidates to talk about how just the conversation we had, that the fact that this is a national security slash economic slash humanitarian program, and we have got to have strong institutions of government and outside the government to deal with these global challenges such as coronavirus. You'll see it. Uh, you'll see conversations about climate change. It plays out there. Um, you probably won't see the issue of fragility talked about much, but you'll you'll see Afghanistan and Iraq. And so, yeah, this will come into sort of 10 percent of the campaign maybe. All right. Let me let me push you a little bit on your answer because I, I largely agree with you. But let me ask you a maybe tougher question and, and feel free to say uh, you don't want to answer it. Let me preface it by saying, you know, as a, as a Republican, I'm very concerned about anything from the current administration that sounds isolationist or sounds like we need to retreat from the world or our leadership isn't required. And I, and I find it very alarming when it's reflected in budget requests or in mm-hmm. policy initiatives, uh, whatever they may be. I'm a, I'm a committed internationalist. Are you, uh, on, in the other party, concerned about any of the folks running for office on your side? And I'm not asking you to name names or anything, but are you seeing any kind of isolationist uh, language or isolationist instinct on the left? Um, I saw that from one candidate who's no longer a candidate and was uh, not from the left, was was a moderate Democrat. Um, And my concern will be if the Democrat, if a Democrat wins the White House, uh, they maintain the House, maybe they take over the Senate, that there has been such a a loss of momentum and funding on domestic programs that the Democrats will focus on those domestic programs and not sufficiently on the international side. I don't think it's going to happen, but we have to be alert to that possibility. Great. George, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Episode 14 of Fault Lines. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Hamilton Place Strategies for hosting us today, Jason Jennings for engineering our episode, Claude Jennings for editing, and of course, Grant Haver for being our producer and director. Thanks, and see you next week.